So if you have your Bible, would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 7? Matthew 7. And we're going to read from verse 7. And it says, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. To the one who knocks the door will be opened. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, would give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, would give him a snake? If you then, though you're evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. As with every passage of Scripture, we begin by understanding context. And the words that we read today are the words of Jesus. This is Jesus speaking. Actually, more specifically, this is Jesus preaching. These words form one of his sermons. In fact, they form the most famous sermon that Jesus ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount. And I always think it's interesting the way that the title of the sermon is determined by its location. So as we approach the Sermon on the Platform this morning, we are looking at the Sermon on the Mount. And understanding the context of these words are really important because they help us understand how to approach them, how to apply them, how to handle them. And when Jesus teaches the Sermon on the Mount, he is introducing his listeners to the kingdom of God and he is describing to them the dynamics and the foundations of the kingdom of God. And as he does, he begins to teach them about prayer. Prayer is a foundational dynamic of the kingdom of God. And certainly we know this not just because it's mentioned within the sermon where Jesus introduces the dynamics and the foundations of the kingdom, but we know this because when Jesus comes to earth to release and advance the kingdom, he does so through a life that is punctuated with prayer. He is praying in the River Jordan when the Holy Spirit descends on him and he begins his ministry. He commences his ministry from there with this 40-day fast in the wilderness that is not just about abstaining from food, but is about seeking and pressing into the face of God. He regularly withdrew from the crowd, even withdrew from his disciples to pray, and sometimes prayed through the night. He prayed all night just before he selected the 12 apostles. The transfiguration with the cloud of glory and the voice of God booming audibly, announcing his pleasure, that took place within a prayer session. He prayed openly before many miracles, like the feeding of the 5,000 when he took the loaves and breads in his hands and he looked to heaven and he openly gave thanks, or before he raised Lazarus from the dead and he paused and he talked to God. He prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane when the circumstances of life before him were causing this inner conflict and he was praying for the alignment of his will with the will of God in that moment. And he prayed from the cross releasing words of forgiveness and mercy. Jesus was a man of prayer. And therefore, there is no one better place to teach us on this subject. And if you think about it, Jesus actually understands prayer from all angles. He understands prayer from the perspective of a human being communicating with God as we've just outlined from his ministry the times that he was praying and seeking God as a human being, connecting with him, but he also understands prayer from being God. He is the one through whom we pray. 
He is the mediator between God and man, and He ever lives to make intercession for us. He gets it. He gets prayer from all angles. And therefore, when He begins to talk about prayer, well, those words are like gold. They are the words of an expert on the matter. And Jesus describes prayer in the following way. He describes it as asking, seeking, and knocking. But before we focus in on those terms, ask, seek, and knock, there is another term that we have to understand in order to approach the passage properly. And that is the word, Father. So actually, we approach the passage in a kind of topsy-turvy, back-to-front, upside-down way, and we kind of focus on the end of the passage in order to understand the beginning of the passage. And in verse 9, Jesus says this, which of you If his son asked for bread, would give him a stone, or if he asked for a fish, would give him a snake. If you then, though you're evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? The key to unlocking an understanding of prayer is to unlock an understanding of God as Father. And if prayer is communication, and communication is the basis of every relationship, then we can take that statement actually a step further and we can say that the key to unlocking a life-changing, transformative, everyday relationship with God is to understand Him as Father. I gave my life to Jesus at a very young age as a child. I've spent most of my life being raised within an awareness of God I went to Bible college. I was ordained in ministry for years leading a church before I had an experience of the fatherhood of God that broke me into a million pieces but yet made me better. We can exist in church life and in Christian world. We can exist walking the walk and in a real relationship with Him. But that which opens that up to a whole transformative level It's when we allow ourselves to meet him as Father. Prayer is all about interaction and communication with God as Father. And we know this because Jesus likens prayer to an interaction between children and their fathers. And as he does, he calls out some really interesting stuff. One of the first things that we notice from his sermon or these verses of the Sermon on the Mount is that Jesus reveals his belief and understanding of the universal sinfulness of all human beings. That's quite a big statement, right? But we find it here in this passage. Jesus is drawing a parallel between the heavenly father and an earthly father, and he says, if you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask? And at first glance, You would think that Jesus has been a bit harsh here, calling everybody evil. He doesn't use like a softer, easier to swallow word like frail or weak or even wrong would be okay, but no, he goes for a hard-hitting square between the eyes word evil. He calls out everyone within the sound of his voice as he's mid-preaching. He calls everyone in his congregation evil evil. And you think, well, that's not really preaching 101, is it? 
bring your congregation into the message that you're presenting. That sounds like alienating them from the get-go. It sounds like he's having a bit of a go, but actually he's not. He is revealing the universal sinfulness of all humanity. And he makes this sweeping statement. It's a generalization, but although it's a generalization, it is an accurate one. Because what Jesus spells out is a basic doctrine of the Christian faith, and that is that everyone is born sinful. We all have this sinful nature. And while that sounds harsh, it is profoundly true. We all have that inbuilt mechanism to do wrong. It's that age-old truth that you don't need to teach a child to do wrong. It's an impulse. And we all have these impulses that are part of our human makeup, and it comes through, and it manifests in our thoughts, in our actions, in our speech. It's just part of who we are. And we talk about it here often. It's those times where you're like, why did I say that? Why did I think that? Why did I do that? When you say something you don't mean to say, and you think something you don't mean to think, and you do something you don't mean to do, and I defy any human being that has a pulse not to have those kind of moments. It's just part of who we are. And Jesus calls this out, and he, he calls out that we all live and function with somewhat warped impulses and drivers at the core of our being, but the purpose of Jesus in calling this out is not to heap guilt and shame and condemnation on us. Rather, he's making a comparison. In fact, actually, he's highlighting a contrast. He's highlighting a contrast between earthly fathers and the heavenly father. The implication of that is in the statement, if you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father? The implication is that the heavenly father is different to our earthly fathers. In fact, he is so different. Because we as human beings, we have these impulses that drive who and what we are, but God doesn't have those impulses. We as earthly fathers, we have those elements of dysfunction that come out in the things that we say and the things that we do, but He doesn't have that. We earthly fathers, we get it wrong sometimes, stroke a lot of the time. God never does. Earthly fathers have their flaws, but God has none. And therefore, a major message that has been communicated by Jesus here is that we can't allow our experiences of our earthly fathers to impact, limit, or restrict our understanding and our experience of the fatherhood of God. Because Jesus and calling as evil is actually spelling out the contrast and he's teaching that God is a good father. He is good. He is in essence. He is in character. He is in nature good. Everything about him is good. But not only is everything about him good, everything he does is good. Jesus says, how much more will your father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Jesus highlights that what the Father does is good. Who He is and what He does are intrinsically linked. It's through what He does that we see who He is, and it's because of who He is that He does what He does. And who He is and what He does is good. His actions reveal His motives. And that's what Jesus begins to teach here in this passage as He begins to talk about bread and fish and snakes and stones and all this kind of stuff. 
He's talking about the heart of God and how the heart of God is put into action, how who he is is seen in what he does and what he does reveals who he is. He says, which of you, if your son asked for bread, would give him a stone? And this, this sounds like a really bizarre illustration because you're like, Jesus, if you're asking this as a serious question, which of you, if your son asked for bread, would give him a stone? Well, the answer is, nobody. No one would do that. It sounds like a bizarre illustration. It doesn't seem to make sense, but actually it does. In the time of Jesus, bread wasn't in nice cuboid loaf shapes that we get today from our supermarkets. They were flat, pale, and rounded. In fact, loaves or pieces of bread specifically that were given to children were quite small. Theologians note that the small round limestones normally found in beaches were exactly the color and the shape of the small loaves that would have been given to children. And suddenly this whole analogy of children being coming and asking for bread and being given stones begins to make sense. The point that Jesus is making here is that God is not one who plays with us like pawns on his massive chessboard. He doesn't mess about with us for his pleasure. Like when we come and we ask for bread and he gives us something that looks like bread and appears to be bread, but ha, 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 it's not. He doesn't mess with us. He doesn't mock us like some narcissistic God who finds pleasure in messing about with the inferior beings. That's not who he is. It's not what he does. He doesn't build our hopes up and then dash them again and have a laugh in the process. His motives are pure. And his impulses are like that of a father towards his children. They're impulses of love. Equally, Jesus says, which of you, if your son asked for fish, would give him a snake? And again, you're like, if this is a genuine question, nobody would respond to their son who comes for some fish and go, here you go, here's a cobra. Like, it doesn't make sense. But again, theologians reckon that the snake being referred to here is actually an eel. And that would make sense in the whole fish analogy. But it also brings other layers of understanding because an eel was an unclean fish according to Jewish law. It was something that they were not permitted to eat. So Jesus continues the point that he's teaching here. God is not the kind of God that if you come to him and ask for a fish... He's going to give you a fish, but not the kind of fish that you can eat. He's not the one who toys with us. He's not one that messes with us. He doesn't give us what we can't use or what we don't need. He's not one that dangles a carrot in front of us, but never ever lets us have it. He's not cruel. He's not manipulative. He's not controlling. He is loving and perfect and pure in who he is and his actions and his motives. Now, let's read this passage at face value. Let's say, okay, we're going to read this at face value. Let's say it is a snake, not an eel. It is a snake. Well, there's further layers of understanding then. Because God is not one who comes, who when we come to him with a need, is going to respond by giving us something that's harmful to us. He doesn't send pain and harm our way. As if to say, oh, you think you have a need, do you? Let me show you what need really looks like. 
Oh, you come to me in pain. Let me show you what real pain looks like. Oh, you think you're struggling. Let's see how you do with this kind of struggle. That's not who he is. It's not what he does. And again, if you dive into this passage in the original Greek, the word that is used for snake, it does carry the interpretation directly of serpent as in Satan. And you know, sometimes we find ourselves on the receiving end of attack and oppression from the enemy and we shake our fists at God and we say, why have you allowed this to happen? Or when we go through difficulty and hardship and we go, is it because of this that this has taken place? Are you punishing me? Is it because I didn't do this? Is it because I did do this? Is it because I failed in this way? Is it because I'm not good enough? And Jesus is like, listen, that's not who he is. It's not what he's like. He doesn't kick us when we're down. He doesn't heap tragedy upon tragedy upon us when we're struggling. He doesn't watch us go through the tribulations of life and then send in the enemy to make it worse. That's not who he is. It's not what he's like. He gives good gifts to his children. He is a good father and he does what is right for his kids. And these are really important messages that Jesus presents to us in these somewhat unusual sentences. And, and we really need to home in on these. And maybe if you hear nothing today, you could hear these messages. Your heavenly father is nothing like your earthly father. He doesn't function with the same impulses or out of the same flawed nature. He is flawless. He is pure and perfect in nature. So don't allow your experience of your earthly father to limit your experience and understanding of your heavenly father. His motives are pure. He does not play games with us. He doesn't view us as pawns on his chessboard to mess about with for his pleasure. He doesn't take pleasure in building our hopes up and then quickly stripping them from us. He doesn't set us up to give himself a laugh. He's not in the habit of giving us what we don't use or sending harm in our way. He doesn't kick us when we're down. He doesn't heap tragedy upon tragedy when we're struggling. No, he does what is right by his kids because he is a good, good father. And you know, it would be really easy within the natural order of a service and a sermon just to push on through to the end. But actually, I think we need to pause here for a moment because I think the father wants to minister to us today. There may be some of us who are here in this moment today and we, we've been through some difficult stuff or we're going through some difficult stuff where it's like tragedy is piling upon tragedy just as everything seems to get broken, everything seems to get worse. As you turn a corner, it seems to get darker. The storm descends, it doesn't seem to be lifting. Some of us perhaps have been through some traumatic situations or working our way through some stuff and we're like, why is this happening? Why is this going on? And this morning God would ask us to pause because he wants to give us what is good just wants to father us. He wants to father us this morning. Maybe some of us have been in that place where I was for so long, where we've lived the Christian walk and we've lived the Christian life and we live in relationship with him and we know him, but we haven't yet discovered his fatherhood. See, sometimes our experience of our earthly fathers 
can impact and limit our experience of our Heavenly Father, knowingly and unknowingly. Sometimes we are on the receiving end of stuff that fathers say and do, and they don't mean anything by it. But it lands, and it causes pain, and it causes hurt, and it leaves an indent. Sometimes some of us are on the receiving end of stuff that we should never have been. Fathers function out of dysfunction, out of frailty. And the point I'm trying to make is that sometimes that, whether we realize it or not, can cause a real barrier to come up and can impact the way that we interact with our Heavenly Father. But He is so, so different. And He is so, so good. And He always does what is right for his kids and this morning where you are right now whether you know him intimately as father whether you're stepping into that whether you've never stepped into that wherever you are he just wants to father you today God is a good good father and good isn't just who he is but it's also what he does he gives good things to those who ask. And here is another really important part. The giving of that which is good is linked to the asking of his children. Good things, Jesus says, are released by God through the asking of his children. And as we recognize the identity of the Father, so we also have to recognize the identity of His children. Those who possess the identity of the children of God are those who recognize the sinful nature of humanity and choose to apply to that sinful nature with its impulses and its desires, the grace and the forgiveness of God revealed through Jesus Christ. Those that put their faith and trust in Him, those who receive His forgiveness into their lives are those who become His children. Because John's Gospel tells us to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. An experience and relationship with God as Father is only found through receiving, believing, and embracing the forgiveness and the grace of Jesus Christ. And to those who do, a very special standing and privilege is found. Because we're told that God releases good things through the asking of his children. Jesus says, if you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Jesus says, how much more will your Father in heaven? Notice he doesn't say, how much more will the Father in heaven? Or how much more will my Father in heaven? But he says, how much more will your Father in heaven? Jesus is talking here to the children of God. He's talking to those that have been born again. Those who have accepted Jesus Christ. He's talking to the believer. And here is the unique standing of the believer. The believer in Jesus Christ has the ability to see good things released from heaven through asking the Father. And this asking is what we call prayer. And here is the power of prayer. Here is the power of the prayer of the believer. 
The believer has the ability to see good things from heaven unlocked upon the earth. And so Jesus invites the children of God, and maybe even if you could read it this way, he commands the children of God, ask and it will be given to you, seek and you will find, knock and the door will be opened. Ask, seek, knock. Three verbs, three distinctive actions that perhaps teach us three different approaches to prayer. And as we move towards bringing this into land, we look at these three different approaches to prayer. The first is to ask. To ask is to be direct. It's to make a request. It's to get an answer. To speak to someone and ask, can you do this, is to get an answer, yes I can, or no I can't. Will you do this? Are you in? Are you out? Was to get an answer of yes, or is to get an answer of no? To ask is to see the result of that which you've requested either been done or not been done. And you know what? There are times in prayer when our approach to prayer is simply about recognizing a need and just being direct with God and asking and getting an answer. Yes or no. Asking and seeing a result. Seeing it being done or not being done. Seeing it being granted or seeing it being denied. There are times in prayer when we just need to come as believers before God and directly ask. And Jesus kind of suggested that we take that approach. In Matthew chapter 6, as he's teaching about prayer, he says, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites because they love to pray standing in synagogues and on street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they've received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, because they think they'll be heard because of their many words. Don't be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. And I know that these verses are setting us up for the Our Father stuff, and that is a model of prayer rather than an approach to prayer. But what Jesus says here is, see, when you come to pray, don't babble on. There are times when you just need to be direct and ask. Because he already knows what you're going to ask and he already knows what he's going to do in response. So come and be direct. And therefore, as we read this from Jesus, we take confidence to know that there are times when we can be direct with God and we can believe for a direct answer and a direct result. Certainly, Jesus says, if you ask anything in accordance with my will, it will be done. That's pretty direct, isn't it? And so the question is, how do we know when we should come and be direct with God in our asking? And the answer clearly is in Jesus' statement. When we come asking in accordance with His will, that's when we know we can be direct. And that's when we know we'll get a direct answer, yea or nay, granted or denied. Second approach Jesus tells us is to seek in order to find. And seeking is not quite as direct as asking. Seeking is about looking. It's about hunting something down. It's about pursuing. It's about chasing. Ultimately, seeking is about a journey, and it's about a persistent journey at that. 
And there are times when we need to journey with God in prayer, times when we need to seek and seek and keep on seeking, times when we need to press in and keep on pressing in, times that we need to pursue, to chase after, to hunt down in order that in the process and in the journey we discover. That's the point of seeking. The point of seeking is to discover something. And there are times in which God calls us to press into Him. There's times in which God calls us to pray and to add to that praying, more praying. Times that He calls us to be persistent. And the point is that as we journey in that process, we will begin to discover, begin to discover His mind, begin to discover His heart, begin to discover His power. But you know what? Sometimes the discovery in the journey of prayer isn't always about discovering the heart of God, but sometimes as we press in and we seek and we seek and we seek and we begin that process of journeying, sometimes God does that thing where He holds up the mirror to us. Sometimes it's not quite about discovering the heart of God, but discovering our own hearts. Sometimes the journey in prayer begins to reveal our own attitudes and our own behaviors and our own mindsets that need to change in order to see the answer that we are pursuing. And I think that's why there's those moments that God calls us to begin the process of persistent prayer and and to pray and to keep pressing in. Because as we begin that journey and as we lay hold of Him time and time again, as He begins in that process then just to chip off some of the rough edges that to do all at once would be too painful and would be too difficult for us, but He calls us to press in and press in and He begins to reveal to us our heart and our mind and our attitudes and He begins to transform us more into His likeness that we can either be the answer that we're looking for or we're at least ready to receive the answer that we're looking for. There's times that we need to pursue in prayer and keep on seeking. There's also times that we need to knock. Jesus says, and the door will be opened. Notice the difference in these verbs. Ask, seek, knock. One is making a request. The other is making a journey. And the third is about taking action. The third is about knocking on the door and seeing if it's going to open. It's about putting action to request. And you know, there are times in prayer when it's necessary to put action to the prayer. There are times when it's necessary to start living out what we're trying to pray in. Like, we could pray about our community. We could pray about the state of our community and the condition that our community is in. Or we could pray about our community and then go into our community and be part of making a difference to the state that it's in. We could pray about poverty and the poverty that sits on our doorstep and we could pray and pray and pray and ask God to make a difference about it or we could pray about the poverty that lives and exists in our surrounding community and we could invest who we are and what we've got in responding to that. We could come and we could pray that God would save souls And we could pray with all earnest that lives would be transformed and that God would bring salvation and we'd feel that we've accomplished something at the end of our amen and then we gather every week and wonder why they haven't magically walked through the door by themselves. Or we could live out what we're praying in. And we could pray for the salvation of our friends and our family and our neighbors and our colleagues and start living a life that represents Jesus to them and reaching out to them and connecting with them and loving upon them and ministering to them. You get the point? 
We could pray for those that are struggling in their marital relationship. We could pray for those that are struggling in their financial hardship. Or we could turn up on their doorstep with a meal and a listening ear. There's times in which we need to put action to prayer. Times that we need to knock on the door that we want to see open. Times that we want to take action to see that which is restricted access. Times that we need to engage in warfare. Fight for what we believe is ours. Fight for what we believe we've been called to. Times in which we need to knock on the door and turn the handle and see if it's going to open or if it's going to stay locked shut. Times that we need to take the step of faith and step into it and see if that's what God's calling us to do. Three verbs, ask, seek, knock, being direct, making a journey, taking action. And here's the incredible thing. Each of these approaches guarantee an answer. Jesus says, for everyone who asks receives, the one who knocks or who seeks finds, and to him who knocks the door will be opened. This is a really bold statement that you could almost read as a promise and a guarantee. Whether you're asking, seeking, or knocking, all are going to generate a response from God. And here again is the glimpse of the Father because here not only are different ways of approaching Him in prayer, but here also are the different positions of the believer in the walk with God. For some people and in some seasons, God is so close that you can just ask Him directly. You know those seasons where it feels like you, you do barely even need to say something and it's answered before you. Those seasons where you call on His name and His presence is close. Those times where it feels like you're sitting and just talking directly into the heart of God. And yet for some people and in some seasons of life, it feels like we need to journey a little bit to connect with Him. We need to press in a little bit. We need to pursue Him a little bit. We need to seek Him out. And for some people, and in some seasons of life, it can feel like at times there's stuff between the way. There's barriers. There's obstacles. But here's the promise. Whether God is up close and personal, whether He's just within touching distance or hard to see because of the barriers and the obstacles, when you call, He will hear and He will answer. And the reason that we can be sure that it doesn't matter where we're at, whether we're so close and personal with Him because we read all of the Psalms every single morning in the original Hebrew before we go to work. Whether we spend an hour a day praying in tongues, whether we spend time worshiping on our faces before Him all the time and we're so up close and personal, or whether we're in the place where we can't remember the last time we felt our big toe, let alone the presence of God. Whether we're living the life, whether we're far from living the life, we have this assurance that when we call, He will hear and He will answer because our Heavenly Father, He doesn't take cream puffs. He doesn't fall out with us. He's not moody and He's not into punishment exercises. Wherever we are, whatever season we're in, when we call, He'll answer. Jesus says he'll always answer with good things. Now, don't read into that blessing and prosperity and all that kind of nonsense. Because, you see, he always does what's right for his kids. He always answers with what's good for us. And here's where perhaps we struggle because what we view as good for us might not be what our Father who sees the beginning from the end knows is good for us. 
We come before him and we pray and we tell him what it is we want him to do and we ask what we think is good for us. But here's the thing, our father is not the kind of father if you come and ask for a fish, he's going to give you a snake. While he gives us good things, he doesn't give us that which he knows further down the line is going to be harmful for us or is not going to be good for us. But he gives us what he knows is good for us. You see, God doesn't always answer prayer the way that we want him to, but it doesn't mean he's not answering he always does what is best for his kids. God releases good things through the asking of his children. And that's something we need to grasp, not just in our own individual identities and lives, but also in terms of the lives of others. We as children of God, as believers, we operate in a very unique position. Hear what Jesus says. We have the ability to unlock good on the earth just through our asking. So we make it our mission to see good things released by identifying in our lives and in the lives of other people needs, believing that wherever we are and whatever's going on in our journey, that we're in a position whether we're up close and personal, skirting, skirting around the boundaries or stuck behind the barriers, we believe that God hears and God answers. And so we journey through life. And as we do, we begin this process of discerning. Is this that is before me something that I just need to ask? Just to be direct? Just to believe God for the answer and the result? Or is this something that I need to begin to persist with Him on? That I need to seek? then I need to press in and keep pressing in? Or is this something that I need to knock for, that I need to begin to take action, that I need to begin to live out? And you know, I think that sometimes the reason why prayer can seem so difficult and why at times it can seem that we live in seasons of unanswered prayer is because we're not so great at taking the needs and the things that He puts on our hearts and putting it through this matrix. And we come and we ask, and when we don't see an answer, we just give up and move on and we steer into disappointment. Whereas perhaps what we need to do is to begin to discern, God, that which you put on my heart, that need that you brought across my path, is this something that I can just be direct about? Ask and believe to see the answer? Or is this something that actually you're calling me to seek you for? And I need to lay hold of it. And I need to pray and I need to press in because actually you're beginning a journey with me as well as a journey with the situation. Is this something that I need to keep on keeping on for? Or is this something that you're calling me not just to pray, but to live out, to become the answer to the prayer, to serve, to fight for? Is this a door that you want me to kick open? Is this something you want me to go through? We have the assurance that in any case, in every case, whether he's calling us to be direct, whether he's calling us to press in and pursue, whether he's calling us to act and live out, he hears us, he cares for us, and he acts because he is good, and he always does that which is good for his kids.